Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor shares what's new with the flu vaccine this year and why you need to make sure to get one. Some people say, well, why should I get it if it's, if it's only half as, as effective? Well, any percent effective is better than no percent effective. A surgeon explains the value of screening for lung cancer and which people can benefit the most. We know that there are distinct differences in the biology of lung cancer in women versus men, and many more women non-smokers get lung cancer than men non-smokers. And a psychiatrist talks about why and how he began taking mental health services to people who live on the streets. One day they're interested in treatment, one day they're not, so it's really important to respond as quickly as possible. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the value of screening certain people for lung cancer. Then we'll hear from a psychiatrist who provides mental health care to the homeless. But first, it's time to guard ourselves against the flu. It's flu season again, and with me to talk about what to expect this year is Dr. Jared Bagatelle. He's a family physician and the director of Upstate's Employee and Student Health. Thank you for being here, Dr. Bagatelle. Good morning, Amber. Thank you for having me. Why is the flu season such a big deal every year? Wow. Well, flu season is a big deal every year because uh, lots of people get sick from it. Lots of people die from it. And I think it's something that we don't uh, necessarily appreciate as much as we need to. All right. Um, lots of people die from it. Okay, so yeah. let's just look at last year's flu season. What sure. was that like in terms of... Well, last year was one of the, one of the worst flu seasons uh, by numbers as far as they go in the past many years. Uh, the CDC recently reported that approximately 80,000 people died from the flu last year. And we had 180 children die from the flu last year. These are numbers we haven't seen in, in many years now. So it was uh, certainly an, an eye-opener, uh, certainly very important for uh, people to take notice and to prepare for the next storm that's going to hit seasonally. We, we have hurricane season and we have flu season, and this is, this is, how this it, is both. This is time to get ready to prepare for. Now, 80,000, that's a huge number. Sure. Um, some of them could have been avoided if they'd been vaccinated, maybe? Absolutely, yeah, that's certainly the, uh, the presumption. Uh, usually the flu is most severe in folks who are uh, over age 65 and even the, the very young. Last year was a curious flu virus. It was a little take on, on the H3N2, not necessarily anticipated as such in the, vac in the vaccine itself. So the uh, effectiveness of the vaccine wasn't necessarily as good as we'd all hoped it to be. Uh, so that played into it as well. It was particularly a more uh, virulent or, or stronger strain as well. And, um, and quite so honestly, what, probably caught us off guard. That's what H3N2 is a particular strain? Yeah, yeah. Flu? In any given flu season, Amber, there are uh, many different types of strains that, that go through the communities and, and fly through the world. Uh, many different types of flu strains. It's not just one or two or even four that's in the quadrivalent vaccine. There are many. And these many flu strains are, are trying to survive themselves, too. Um, so they change their genetic composition mid-season. And even subtle changes can cause uh, significant outbreaks. Well, what's your advice for how someone can protect themselves or their family from getting sick? Well, first and foremost, the CDC absolutely recommends that everybody over age six months gets a flu vaccine. So the first and foremost, get out there and get a flu vaccine. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's developed to anticipate the flu strains that may be coming around. Certainly, it's never 100% effective. Uh, in a really good year, it could be between 40 and 60% effective. And some people say, well, why should I get it if it's, if it's only half as, as effective? 
Well, any percent effective is better than no percent effective if it'll prevent you from, uh, in, in the least, missing work, in the most, being hospitalized, and in the worst, dying from it. So, uh, so first and foremost, you get your flu vaccine. Secondly, you protect yourself and your family by uh, frequently uh, washing your hands for 20 seconds with warm water and soap. Or use uh, alcohol-based based, uh, gel to keep your hands clean as often as you can during the flu season. Certainly avoid touching your eyes, your nose, your mouth. And if you're around somebody who's coughing and they're not... Uh, using cough etiquette, that is, coughing into their arm or their sleeve, and they're coughing into their hand, gently remind them <laughs> that, uh, that they could do so, um, because uh, it, it's quite, quite contagious. So if, if I get my vaccination, and mm -hmm. then I'm around someone, um, or say I'm exposed to the flu, sure. like someone who's sick, and I've been vaccinated and I'm protected, maybe it's that 30% or whatever, but I'm sure. protected, can I still spread the germs to someone who isn't protected? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you say, the vaccine is never 100% effective. In a good year, it's 40 to 60. Last year, it was around 36%. Um, but certainly, you don't know what strain you may have been infected uh, with. And uh, anybody in the community who may otherwise be vulnerable can certainly um, be susceptible to getting, getting that strain. What's very curious about the flu, Amber, is that you can spread the flu even before you know you're sick which is very concerning for populations such as, as hospitals or uh, colleges or large workforces or even families um, because uh, the virus can be spread up to one day before a person has symptoms. And it's, it's contagious up to five to seven days after the onset of symptoms. So that's something that's so very important to know. It isn't that you can obviously see somebody at Wegmans who's sick and you want to avoid them. That person at Wegmans may be sick and doesn't know it yet, and you've been exposed to them. And that's and, really a big concern. And we're not talking about just, um, I don't know, sore throat and fever. I mean, this uh, the real influenza sure. will knock you on your... Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Amber, because those folks who come to me and say, uh, I don't think I'm going to get a flu shot, clearly I ask them, have you yourself ever had the flu? Do you know anybody who's had the flu? Chances are they don't, and they didn't have it, because if you had the flu, you never want to get it again. So uh, it is absolutely remarkable. It is, it's different than a typical cold, um, although some of the symptoms are, are common and, and they share. Typically, uh, a flu hits you like a truck. You people have come to me in the office and said, I know what hour, what minute I began to get sick. Wow. It hits them like a truck. You are profoundly achy in a typical sense. And there's a whole uh, certainly constellation of variation on how people may uh, present with symptoms depending on their, their health makeup, uh, their age, other uh, disease conditions. Uh, it's remarkable how people can present. They can present as uh, profoundly achy, horrible headache, uh, don't want to get out of bed, uh, sore throat, stuffy nose, nasty dry cough, and a fever, possibly. But the fever isn't necessarily an absolute hallmark of the flu. Um, some folks do get a fever with it. Um, but if you are feeling in flu season profoundly achy, and you've got a, a dry cough, and you're just feeling like you don't want to get out of bed, you got to think about possibly having the flu and certainly stay home from school, stay home from work. Uh, you don't need to, to spread this to your friends and neighbors and now, you said that everyone over the age of six months um, is recommended to get a flu shot. Yes. Is there anyone b besides under six-month-olds um, who shouldn't get a flu shot, like who should not. pregnant women? Pregnant women certainly should get flu shots. Okay. Every woman who's pregnant is strongly advised to get a flu shot at its, uh, at its availability um, because mom certainly, uh, understanding that her soon-to-be newborn is not able to get a flu shot, we need to protect everybody around this newborn uh, with a flu shot. There's a lot of concern about the, uh, the pertussis vaccine you probably heard of, that uh, women who are pregnant are recommended to get a, a booster with a Tdap, a 
tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine so that the potential, uh, the, the newborn could be potentially at risk for contracting pertussis because they're not fully vaccinated until they're two, four, and six months. So a mom is advised to get the vaccine so they can passively uh, share the protection mm -hmm. to the newborn. It's remarkable what vaccines can do to prevent disease. Uh, we become, uh, pardon the uh, expression uh, and the pun, we become immune to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's really unfortunate that we have understanding that just 100 years ago, what happened on Earth is just, just so profound historically. 100 years ago? 100 years ago, 1918. Um, 1918 was uh, the world's greatest uh, pandemic in recorded history. It's remarkable to read that Across the globe at that time, during World War I, 500 million people across the globe were infected with influenza at that time. And what's so frightening is that it's estimated that at least 50 million people around the world died from influenza. Wow. That would have amounted to, I did the math, 3% of the world's population was wiped out in 1918 because of this worldwide pandemic, because of this very virulent strain, this, this H1N1 as they learned it to be. Um, and it's remarkable. W what do we have now that we didn't have 100 years ago? We have vaccines. We have vaccines. We're also a lot more mobile. We're mobile. Now, so would that put us at greater risk for this being able to spread faster? That's an excellent point, of course, of course. Absolutely. Wow. Well, let me ask you some specifics on sure. when do people need to get vaccinated? Sure. Um, people ask me all the time, and we're really a full court press here with our flu clinics here at Upstate with uh, being the largest employer of Central New York. We're, we're doing our very best efforts to collaborate to uh, vaccinate as many uh, folks as we can early. Uh, so early uh, fall? Early fall, absolutely. The CDC advises that everybody be vaccinated against the flu by the end of October. Um, I counsel my, my patients and my family and, and friends, neighbors, colleagues, whomever they be, uh, get the flu vaccine when it's available. It's never too early to get a flu vaccine, Amber. It's always potentially too late. It takes at least two weeks to build full immunity to the vaccine. So... Um, the sooner you get it, the better off you'll be prepared for the for the flu season. Okay. Now, this season, uh, there's a an inhaled version. You can get a shot in sure. the arm or an inhaled version. Sure. Yeah. Um, do they work? Are they both as effective? It's a very good question. Uh, several years ago, uh, the nasal flu vaccine, which is a live vaccine, which is different than the inactivated um, uh, injectable flu vaccine, the flu vaccine nasal spray a couple of years ago uh, was pulled away as an option for vaccination because it was deemed not as effective as the flu shot. So for the past two previous seasons, the nasal spray was not available because it wasn't recommended to cover as we expect. Interestingly, this year, uh, the CDC um, reintroduced the option to get a nasal a nasal uh, vaccine. Um, the nasal vaccine is intended for those people who otherwise wouldn't get a shot. So perhaps you've got an extremely fearful child who would otherwise not get the flu shot. That might be somebody you can convince to get the, the nasal vaccine. Um, but um, uh, the, the general recommendation is get the, get the flu shot it is anticipated and expected to be more effective than the nasal vaccine. So the nasal vaccine is an option, but even uh, even folks like uh, the pediatric community and uh, academies of, of family physician and such, they um, they would uh, put that as the second option. Ah, okay. okay. The non-option is no vaccine. Okay. Um, so certainly the, the the flu shot. It's quick. It's easy. It's safe. So what do you say to people who say they're not going to get the flu shot this year because last year they got it and they got sick? Sure. Well, 
I, uh, if they're a patient of mine, I, I explore in more detail what they mean by sick. Uh, some people have told me they had a bad diarrheal illness as soon after getting a flu vaccine, and clearly that would be unrelated to the, to the respiratory disease that we talk about with the flu. Often people uh, get the misunderstanding they've had the stomach flu. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that even means, but that is not the flu we're talking about. Uh, certainly people are getting flu vaccines around the fall. And uh, this is oftentimes, certainly in central New York, when we huddle closer together when the weather starts to change, and we're more likely to share uh, respiratory diseases with each other. And there are many, many different common cold viruses that fly around the community. So people can catch any number of these, hundreds, if not more, of different viruses that fly around the community. Again, I, I, remind it, I want to remind everybody that it does take two weeks to build immunity to the flu vaccine. So if you just got your flu vaccine and within one week you're sick with either the flu or a really bad cold, you didn't get it from the flu vaccine, number one, because it's not a live vaccine. You can't get it from the flu shot. You likely were harboring or you were exposed to somebody who had another viral illness. Um, and interestingly, not everybody goes to see their doctor or goes to urgent care or goes to the ER. Or So there are many self-proclaimed diagnosed out there. Okay. Well, good information and a good reminder to get the flu shot. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here to educate us. My guest has been Upstate's Director of Employee and Student Health, Dr. Jared Bagatelle. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, lung cancer screening. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The ability to screen people for lung cancer has been available for about 10 years, and now we have results of a large study showing how well it works. With me in the studio to discuss these findings is, is Dr. Leslie Komen. She's a distinguished service professor of surgery at the Upstate Cancer Center with lots of experience in the diagnosis and treatment and research of lung cancer. Thank you for being here, Dr. Coleman. Thanks, Amber. Well, I want to get right to the news. Um, the results of this lung cancer screening trial from Belgium that were shared during the recent World Conference on Lung Cancer. Please tell us about it. This was very exciting for the lung cancer community because it affirms the results that were found in the United States National Lung Screening Trial published in 2013 that low-dose CT scans in high-risk smokers and ex-smokers saves lives from lung cancer. One study, though, doesn't convince everybody. So the lung cancer world has been waiting anxiously for the results of the Dutch-Belgian trial called the Nelson trial, which was a screening study very similar to the National Lung Screening Trial and came out with not only similar, but actually even better results than the National Lung Screening Trial. In the Nelson trial, which had 50,000 participants just like the other one, they found that the death rate from lung cancer was reduced by 26% in men versus the 20% that was found in the prior trial. For women, it's even greater. It's hard to quantify because in the Nelson trial, there were very few women participants, but it affirms a trend also shown in the National Lung Screening Trial that women at risk have even a greater benefit than men for lung cancer screening. This is based on a very interesting fact that lung cancer in women probably is there 
for about six years before it can show up on a scan versus about only four years for men. And we don't know the exact biology of this, but we know that there are distinct differences in the biology of lung cancer in women versus men. And many more women non-smokers get lung cancer than men non-smokers. So they could potentially have it growing in them longer. Which makes it more susceptible to discovery by screening for a cure. The Nelson trial also affirmed that of lung cancers discovered in a screening program, 80% of them, 8 out of 10 of them, are early stage, most of which are cured by surgery. This is amazing because there's definitely a reduction in advanced stage lung cancer and an increase in the percent of the discovered cancers that are early. In the general population that comes to attention accidentally or by symptoms, only about 15% of them are curable in an early stage by surgery because most of them present in a later Much stage. Later. So help me with the math again in interpreting this. When you say decreased mortality by 26%, if we're just talking numbers of patients, 10 patients, there's a quarter of them that no, will what survive? What it means of, of, say, of 100 patients who are discovered during screening to have lung cancer versus 100 patients who didn't have the screening and were, were discovered to have lung cancer. In the non-screened patients, if 100 patients died of lung cancer, only about 75 would die of lung cancer in the, in the screened screen. patients. This is a huge number of people since tens of thousands, 70,000 people will die of lung cancer. So this is going to save tens of thousands of lives. Provided they get the screening. Provided they get the screening and continue to get the screening. Because the other interesting fact is the more times you return every year or at the prescribed interval, the bigger your advantage becomes. And the Nelson trial had intervals that were different from the United States trial. We screened the patients once a year for three years. The Nelson trial did the first repeat screen after one year from the first one. The second one was after two more years, and the third one was after two and a half more years. So we may not even need to do it once a year. And this will vary both by the sex of the patient and as we learn more and more about the biology and what the radiology findings are. The other thing we're learning now is that artificial intelligence and computer-aided diagnostics will play an extremely large part in interpreting the results of these scans. A CT scan, a single slice of the scan, one image, is a two-dimensional image. We can piece them back together to make a three-dimensional image. And it turns out that volume of the small spot and its growth is much more important than the diameter. So we need artificial intelligence and computer assistance to judge increase in volume because even a very small spot that increases its volume may not necessarily increase its diameter to be seen just to a human uh, observer and but if it's growing over a year or two years or four years it's more likely to be a cancer. Oh. This is uh, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Leslie Coleman. She's the Associate Director for Community Outreach at the Upstate Cancer Center, and today we're talking about lung cancer screening. So not every cancer has a screening test to go with it. I mean, we can think about mammograms for breast cancer and colonoscopy for colorectal cancer. And fit cancer. test. Don't forget the fit test, the which fit is test. replacing the colonoscopy as much, much easier for patients to comply with. Okay. But we don't, there's no screening like for pancreatic cancer or liver cancer, but 
So, so how is it that we can screen for lung cancer? Let's talk about how that's actually done. The screening is a CAT scan or CT scan that many, many people have had of various parts of their body for, for multiple reasons. So it's a medical image. It's, it's an image. It's a, mammography is also an image. Colorectal cancer is not detected by image. It's detected by either direct visualization or what we call biochemical, that is testing for something uh, in a laboratory type test. But this is an imaging test. And the lungs are a fairly easy place to image. They're, you have to look hard and long, but the cancers look very typical. And even when they're small, an experienced radiologist can predict whether this is liable to be a benign nodule or an early cancer with not 100%, but very good certainty. So I suspect that in many years, we won't still be using imaging. There are many uh, aspects of research now going on to detect lung cancer by other means, by blood tests, by what we call exhaled breath analysis, where the compounds created by cancer cells make a different profile in the uh, content of the exhaled breath. But those are not anywhere near ready for prime time yet. The CT scan, it's an everyday test. It can be done in most places. Our biggest shortage in this country is radiologists with a lot of expertise to read them. But as the computer-assisted diagnostics and artificial intelligence improve, that will become less of a problem. The uh, biggest problem we have with lung cancer screening is that patients don't come. And it requires an order from a physician. A you can do a stool test for colorectal cancer yourself at home. You can, most places, women can self-refer for mammography. You can't really self-refer for a CT scan. You can go to a provider, your primary care doctor, nurse practitioner, and or your lung physician, someone, and say, hey, I want to be screened for lung cancer. But you can't just walk in and have it, unfortunately. There is no cost to appropriate patients by the vast majority of insurance companies. This is mandated by the federal government. So there will not be a copay or deductible uh, charge to the patient in almost all cases. And the, uh, but the primary care doctor will get the resort, result and then advise you to go. I just want to remind people that the people who are eligible for this test are between the ages of 55 and 79 and must have a history of smoking of 30 pack years. That means a pack a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years, half a pack a day for 60 years, whatever the packs per day multiplied by the number of years has to be equal to 30 or greater. So this is for relatively heavy smokers. Heavy smokers and people who either are still smoking or have quit smoking within the last 15 years. And a very crucial part of any lung cancer screening program is smoking cessation counseling. And we have a certified tobacco specialist at Upstate who meets with every person who comes to get a screening CAT scan for lung cancer. And she follows up, she makes recommendations, she counsels people, and we believe that this is an ideal time for current smokers to quit. Now, the screening is for smokers, but um, lung cancer is showing up in people who never smoked, right? Yes. Um, actually, 20% of lung cancers are in never smokers, and more than half of all lung cancers now are in people who are not currently smoking, either never smokers or they have quit. 
So the actual development of lung cancer in active smokers is the minority of, of lung cancers right now. The reason we don't screen for those now is because the number of cancers discovered per number of people who would have to be screened doesn't meet our targets for a widespread public health guidance. However, as time goes by, we will be able to refine this. And I suspect that within five to 10 years, we may be screening people who have a family history or a certain gene profile. People will be able to get a blood test, which doesn't necessarily diagnose lung cancer, but tells us whether they have an increased chance of developing it. And then they can be put in a screening program too. So we're just at the beginning of this. I just want to emphasize that this is so important and only 2% of people who are eligible have come for their screening. We need to get that up. And here at Upstate, we are the only certified center of excellence for lung cancer screening in all of New York State beyond the Hudson River. So we are, have had long experience with helping people through this. We have an excellent system for following up and making sure people come back for their next scan. So smokers or people who have quit in the last 15 years between the ages of 55 to 79 can go to their primary doctor and ask for a referral to lung cancer screening. That's exactly right. Let me ask you one more thing about the screening. Um, some people are afraid of CT scans because of the radiation, right? Yes, that's right. And the, the scans that are done for screening are what we call low-dose scans. So they have a much lower dose of radiation than a standard CT scan. And people say it's about the amount of radiation you would get from the atmosphere if you flew high altitude across the country once. It's not a lot. We have no documentation that that amount of radiation in this setting has ever caused a cancer. Maybe after 50 years and millions of people will find out, yes, there may have been one or two cancers induced, but the value of it is so much higher. There's also fear about what happens if we find something. Uh, people themselves, smokers and ex-smokers, are afraid of what's going to happen if lung cancer is discovered. The good news is that in a screening study, eight out of 10 are gonna be cured or close to it. And even people with widespread lung cancer are now living much longer because of immunotherapy. The other fear by doctors is that the patients will have invasive tests for spots on their lungs that turn out to be benign. This is a theoretical risk, but in an experienced screening center, the number of invasive biopsies that are done for things that turn out not to be cancer is extremely low, and the value falls all on the side of doing the screening. Well, this is very valuable information. I really appreciate you sharing it. My guest has been Dr. Leslie Coleman from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, helping the homeless by providing mental health care on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who live on the streets or in shelters in Syracuse have what has been described as an urgent need for integrated, comprehensive psychiatric and addiction treatment. And today I'm talking with an addiction and pain psychiatrist who's doing what he can to help. With me in the studio is Dr. Sunny Aslam. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So how did you get involved in this kind of work? 
I've been lucky in, in that I've had a number of terrific mentors in my life. And, you know, it all probably all started for me when I was really young. And um, my father um, encouraged our family through our church to work at a soup kitchen. So I worked at a soup kitchen growing up and got uh, involved in a lot of volunteer work, um, continued that through college, and then got away from it for a little while, but eventually went to medical school. And I came to Syracuse for residency, and um, I was lucky to be a part of uh, the Department of Psychiatry here at Upstate with wonderful mentors like uh, Dr. Dewan, who, again, the emphasis is on service, forward thinking, what's the best we can do for the community, particularly for those who are vulnerable, vulnerable populations, and that's a big mission here at Upstate. So um, I've been really lucky to have mentors after residency. I had another terrific mentor who stressed this work and doing it in creative ways. So um, I've been able to, to get a lot of um, experience through great mentorship. Now, did you go to medical school knowing that you wanted to get into psychiatry? So interestingly, no. I My father's a vascular and thoracic surgeon, so I grew up around the operating room. He used to let me come, you know, remove staples and see cases. I was fascinated by anatomy, uh, physiology, and the surgical life. Um, so I thought, I went to medical school thinking I was going to be a surgeon, um, and I was just transfixed by um, my experience um, on psychiatric wards and hearing people's stories, being able to listen. Um, and it was just a really moving experience, and there's just such a great need in that area that this is what I decided to do with psychiatry. In your um, chosen field, does it, do, you feel, do you go home at night feeling like you've made a, a difference in someone's life? It's interesting. So it's a mix. At times, you know, working with uh, uh, addicted patients, um, it's an addiction and pain service I'm on, and we're psychiatrists too. So we, uh, we do uh, generally three things, and the people are on the edge of death. Uh, 72,000 people died of opioid overdose last year. 480,000 people a year die in the United States from tobacco use. So literally our patients are dying. And so at times I don't sleep terrific. Uh, I worry uh, about the patients. But definitely, uh, you know, there are many, many stories of people who find recovery and get well as well. So there's a mix there. It's tough at times, and, and people do die, and that's really hard, but there are a lot of successes as well. Well, good. Well, tell us, tell us what you've been doing. Tell us about this project. Yeah, so um, I, I worked for six and a half years uh, at a community psychiatry clinic nearby, so I was um, seeing people uh, in the office typically who would come to my office uh, with uh, um, mental illness, whether schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, etc. They would come to my office, I would see them, they would get a terrific therapist at the clinic, they would maybe participate in programming, groups, um, I'd prescribe medications and um, direct their overall psychiatric care. Um, and it was comfortable, um, but um, my boss challenged me, um, I had interests I wanted to do, uh, different things, and he gave me some projects to go in the community and see people who were so sick or unable to come to the clinic for whatever reasons, and that really uh, captured my interest. So I started to do more and more work in the community, going out and engaging people in the community, and that um, allowed me to connect with many local partners, um, and including John Tomino from In My Father's Kitchen, Maria Sweeney, a, a lot of the local uh, homeless and street outreach workers at the shelter, wonderful people at the rescue mission, Catholic Charities Men's Shelter. So I really got a chance to meet a lot of community partners um, and see what a desperate need there is for, for great care for these folks. And um, I've also had a chance to learn what other organizations are doing. There's, there's so much actually out there and um, the, the challenge is to know what everyone's doing or try your best to and to partner with them the best way you can so people get, get what they need. And so it's not like duplicating things, but filling in what's needed. Exactly. So as I understand it, you spend Fridays, Friday mornings um, is kind of devoted to this? Or how, how do you uh, scope out your work week? Yeah, so, so for a while um, uh, I was attending meetings where there was a talk of this need, um, and the, it was hard to, to fill certain gaps. And so some of the gaps I were hearing about was more of the urgent mobile need for people to... Um, to be to have their issues addressed. If one of the outreach workers, um, say at the shelter or on the street, needed someone tomorrow, then um, uh, there's actually four four volunteers from the par Department of Psychiatry at Upstate who have volunteered to go out on different days of the week to help out. Uh, you know, uh, one nurse practitioner she covers Mondays, I cover Fridays. You know, so we we work these things out. We hand out uh, our cell phone numbers and have people call us, text us. 
um, to let us know because people come into the shelters, they leave, they uh, one day they're interested in treatment, one day they're not. So it's really important to respond as quickly as possible. Um, so that's the work we try to do. And, and again, recognizing that some of our partners in the community are available to do some of this work as well. So we, you know, if it's a day where one of us just can't get there right away, we, um, we, Find we, yeah, we encourage them to call, uh, you know, um, one of the other partners in the community as well. So we're all trying to work together to fill these gaps. So you give out your cell phone number to the patients that you encounter so, at the shelters? Or? So not necessarily the patients. I give them to all the, the shelter workers. I give it to okay. the administrators. So can... I give it, you know, so that when somebody comes that they can, they can certainly, I give out my card with my office phone number. If, uh, if I'm on my way home and there's someone on the corner and I can't stop in the middle of the traffic, right. I give them my card and I say, please call, please call, call me. I want to try to be helpful. Neat. Well, uh, healthfully listeners might remember we recently had um, a colleague of yours, Dr. David Lehman, um, was on this show talking about what uh, the medical care that he's doing. And you work closely with him as well, right? Yeah, not only is Dave a dear friend whose heart I just admire, but yes, we do work quite closely on this work. Um, um, we're constantly in contact with each other about engaging people and figuring out the uh, referrals, figuring out the next best step. I'll hear about somebody that I refer to his, you know, to House Calls for the Homeless for him to see for a medical issue, and he'll send someone uh, that he wants me to see for an addiction or a psychiatric issue. But we're, you know, constantly working together to with with so many other partners um, to to do this work. So, what sorts of issues do you see among um, the homeless in the shelter population? So the, the the statistics show that about a half to two thirds of of the homeless population um, have some type of addiction. If you include tobacco, it's probably everybody, um, and tobacco kills the most. So I sometimes wonder why the statistics don't include tobacco. So I assume that almost all of them have a serious addiction issue. Um, and then on top of that, about a third or so have um, a serious uh, chronic mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and almost all of them have also have some form of trauma, uh, abuse, severe neglect, se sexual, physical, emotional abuse. So you're dealing with a population that's been horribly traumatized, that's addicted, and, and has severe emotional issues. So those are some serious issues to deal with. Um, how do you go about that when there's, there's not a stable home environment? Um, right. So that's one of the keys is uh, the, the main idea is called housing first, that you try to get people housed safely as soon as possible. Um, it, that concept, it makes sense, getting people housed, but the, it, it's complicated, and um, often people need some type of uh, diagnosis um, uh, to be made, to be documented, the forms to be submitted, and the person to be willing to come into housing. Um, sometimes people are so traumatized and afraid of engaging with institutions that um, they will decline housing um, because it feels safer to be outside, for example. Um, or they're just, their addiction so severe that uh, they don't even, uh, housing's just not even on the radar for them because they've, uh, you know, heroin or cocaine addiction has taken over their brain. Oh. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with addiction and pain psychiatrist, Dr. Dr. Sunny Aslam. Um, now, addiction treatment, as I understand it, um, it, it, it's helped by having a support person in your life if you're going through addiction treatment. So how, how is that accomplished, or what, what takes the place of, I don't know, a spouse or partner um, on the street? So it's the treatment team uh, in many cases. It's the shelter staff. It's a lot of loving outreach uh, community workers who do this work, like in my father's kitchen, Maria Sweeney, uh, other peer workers. Um, it's, so it becomes, the treatment team often becomes part of that um, family, if you would, for that person. Is it hard for you to track down your patients it, because they're moving, right? It can be very hard, and that's where the team approach comes in. So people hear me. I'm like a broken record about having a good team because I don't know everything that's going on. In fact, I know very little, but I know the people who know what's going on. And, you know, um, uh, again, like John, Maria, the shelter staff, they, I just show up and they tell me where to go, who to see, what needs to be done. Um, I'm lucky I have the initials after my name that allows me to do a lot of things, but I really need uh, other team members, and uh, honestly, they're the, they're the heroes in this work in my mind. So the team, but then also the patient has to be really invested in wanting help. 
That's right. Because right. not everybody is going to be receptive to having help. That's right. And and it's usually not the first try that where you have much success. Um, this work is about engagement. It's about patience, not being judgmental. And maybe it's the, uh, the second, third, 50th, or 100th time. And, you know, the hope is, is that the person is just still alive when they decide to make that change because of the mortality rates uh, in the population. So let me ask you this. It's got to be personally, like emotionally, it's got, you've got to have days that are emotionally draining in this line of work. What do you do personally to protect yourself from burnout? I mean, how do you, you know, make sure that you're able to go back the next day and the day after that and the day after that? It's a great question. And um, I work with a lot of trainees and there's been so much interest in outpouring lately from trainees who want to do this work. So it's uh, one of the reasons I highlight supervision mentorship self-care as uh, um, so important and again the team thing if you don't have a team that you can talk to because when people pass away you have to you have to grieve that you have to be able to talk about uh, be willing to talk about the mistakes so we can learn from them so we do educational and training things like uh, morbidity and mortality conferences so that the team has a chance not only to process our feelings about losing someone we've been working intensely with um, but also to to grow and to try to get better at what we do Uh, but the team approach mentorship supervision being willing to talk about these things and then the self-care parts you know trying to find some time to exercise and take care of, of myself good well what are your hopes for the future for this program if if uh, if money wasn't an issue what what would you want in place what yeah. would help so I'm really encouraged because there are a number of community partners who are actively engaged and and uh, want to talk about where to go uh, with this project, you know, and, and some recent unfortunate events have, have in the news have, have made this even more of, I think, of a priority. And you hear local officials, you hear businesses, you hear uh, not just the, those of us who do this work, but uh, a greater uh, part of the community engaging in this population about how do we work with and, and deal with the fact that we live in the ninth poorest city in the U.S. with such uh, concentrated racial poverty. And um, so there's really more interest now than I've seen in some time, which is really encouraging. So what my thoughts are that uh, there's about 60 other um, programs in the country of where they have integrated street medicine teams, they're called. And that's where what Dave Lehman's trying to do here and what I'm trying to help him with and, and many community partners, we're trying to put together a team that not only provides comprehensive medical, addiction, psychiatric, social services, housing, outreach engagement, but trains the next generation of, of uh, providers. So I'm going to be gone eventually, and but I would love for you know some of these. I've had occupational therapy, medical students, psychiatry residents, internal medicine. Uh, you know, in so many uh, different people want to contribute. They are thirsty for these opportunities. It's a great experience, and you want to do it in a safe way that where you're supervised by people who have the experience and want to teach. That's Dave Lehman. That's me. We're blessed to to be able to do this work. Um, and, and to love teaching as well. And so, you know, um, Upstate's a terrific place to be and that we have a chance to, to do all this, to plan these things, and hopefully move these uh, ideas forward. Is this work harder in the wintertime up here? It's got to be harder to live on the streets in the wintertime up here, but your work, is that impacted by the weather too? Sure, it, it absolutely is. And, uh, you, you know, the the thing about being the one of the doctors on this is we kind of get a lot of the glory, but it's those other team members who are doing the day-to-day engagement that are out there, who are out there in their coats. And I just have so much admiration for them. They, they call when th- things are needed or they bring me out, they take me out with them. We, you, you know, so... I, Sure, the winter is harder to do, but for the people who do the work like day in, day out, um, I just have so much respect for them. And, you know, kind of the doctors get to come in and, and uh, you know, get a lot of attention. And, and um, But the work done by the, you know, um, shelter staff, for example, is just so moving to me that the way folks at the rescue mission engage with a, a population that's uh, that just at times they just don't want to be engaged, but yet they still do it day in, day out. <clears throat> day in, day out, and pro- just provide uh, um, terrific love and care for these uh, people. Wow. Well, this is very important work, and I appreciate you coming in and telling us about it. My guest has been Dr. Sunny Oslam, an addiction and pain psychiatrist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Stephanie Reef is an internist currently working as an academic hospitalist at NYU Lutheran Medical Center. She teaches other physicians. Her poem, Responsible, demonstrates the commitment that some physicians bring to their profession. Responsible. Just for an exercise in futility, I bought a wall calendar. Each night when my head hits the pillow, I dive into the inky depth of sleep, exhaustion itself blanketing me. All is quiet. X marks the spot of the number of nights I wake, startled. I resurface to a thought perfectly formed, the lactate, check the blood pressure, order zazen. Shedding my covers like a moth from the cocoon and drawn to the glow of the computer screen in the dark, I check on you. Each X an exclamation into the night, a prayer to a God I'm not sure I believe in, a desperate plea that only the far corners of my mind will admit is selfishly driven, because if there is no more you, then what will become of me? Like maybe my racing thoughts, cyclical in their cycle, themselves can heal the failing heart, the wheezing lungs, the septic blood. It's been 173 days of treasure hunting in the dark. I am tired. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, research on respiratory viruses in Ecuador. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.